Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Can we have a moment uh, to be quiet, and then I'm going to preach God's word today. Lord, we thank you that right there at our call to worship, we heard that the, the, uh, the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, are in our armory. So we pray that today, now, in this 25 minutes or so, that you would speak to us and equip us for the battle that you promised would be your disciples and through the generation for all the church to face, a spiritual battle, and you'd equip us for that. Amen. So, I want to speak about spiritual attack. What is it? How does it come? And how do you respond? If you've never heard a talk on spiritual attack, here's a moment to get your phone out or your book out to take some notes. Don't be naive and think you know. We're in a series called Rebuild and Renew. We're using the book of Nehemiah to think about how God's people had to come back from exile, and after many years back in the land, they still had to rebuild the city walls uh, because they were floundering. They'd unable to really take control of the land of Judah because of local enemies. They lacked confidence, they lacked corporate identity, they were discouraged. And uh, the city walls represented all that. They were broken down. God stirs up the heart of a leader, Nehemiah, And Nehemiah leaves his high-powered, high-pressured, high-rewarded job as chief security guard to the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes, uh, the emperor of Persia. And he moves from the comforts and power of the citadel of Susa to the risk and vulnerability of Jerusalem. And we learn in chapter 5 that actually the king repositioned him, so he was still under the king's authority, to make him governor of the land of Judah. And what happened? After God stirred Nehemiah's heart, after lots of prayer and planning, Matthew last week took us through the teamwork and the hard work to get building the city wall and all the different types of people and all the jobs. And it was, it's a wonderful scene of teamwork. And the rebuilding starts. What happens next? A counterattack. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're going to see six different attacks from the evil one to stop the building of the city walls, and to take out the leader, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, is a man under attack. So we're going to think about the six tactics of the devil and consider what they mean for our day and how we can respond. The apostle Paul said famously, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Schemes, S, plural. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So we're going to learn how to be strong in the Lord today. Six forms of attack. What are they? Ridicule, physical attack, distraction and trickery, lies, a false prophet, and internal strife over money. It's the devil's schemes. He has many. We're going to look at each attack, each fiery arrow, and think about how to put up our shield of faith. So firstly, ridicule. Opposition to Nehemiah and his colleagues was uh, there from the get-go. 
Do you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we read this, when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, heard about this, the rebuilding of the, the intention to rebuild, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Why were they disturbed? Because they were doing quite well with Israel not doing very well. They were benefiting from the fact that the Israelites were very sort of fragile, and they got sort of the perks, they got the leadership positions in the land. They weren't from Israel, they weren't Jews, and they sort of had power and control, and if someone was going to rebuild the city walls and regalvanize the people, then surely that would mean that they would lose their position. They felt threatened, and opposition nearly always comes because people feel threatened by the building work. I'm just going to put you on mute if you haven't already. Um, great. So, uh, and um, what happens? Well, as they go on their night recce of the city walls to, just to look at the damage, it says, when Sambalite the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? Mockery, ridicule. And they spread a lie. You're rebelling against the king. In chapter 5, we learned the king had repositioned, and in chapter 2, we learned he'd sent Nehemiah with his blessing. So they were trying to spread a lie to discredit Nehemiah um, that, uh, that, that he was undermining the king's work. And then the work starts. So they hear about it, then they hear about this night recce, where they, and then the actual rebuilding starts. And what do we read? When Sambalat, the same guy, who feels threatened, heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He was angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Do you see how opposition starts when you're in God's kingdom? You're pathetic. You haven't got a chance. Put your head above the parapet for Jesus. Oh, don't do that because you're pathetic. Even a fox could take you down. Every one of us knows that voice. Don't, don't even try. You're not, you're not fit for the task. Other people maybe, but not you. And notice the public is mockery. Uh, it, the mockery is public. It's even harder to get going and keep going as a Christian when you know that other people think you're pathetic. Not just one or two, but it's a public thing. If you've ever tried doing something for God, if you've ever stood up for Jesus, you'll know that voice. And that voice that says, not only is it going to fail, but you're a failure. That voice is a scheme of the evil one. The devil knows that if he can stop you before you even try taking a stand for Jesus in whatever sphere you're in, it's going to be much easier to take you out to start rather than when you've got momentum and had the courage to stand up for him. I remember on our second or third Sunday in Ireland. We've been here literally almost nine years till uh, two days ago. We arrived in Ireland. So in a, I remember on our second Sunday, we'd sort of unpack the boxes, you know, the exhaustion, the tiredness of the move from, from originally from the UK, moved over here uh, to start the church. 
And uh, I remember we were, I was planning our first house church meeting. And there was going to be five or six of us at this first house church meeting. And I remember just in the morning in my study just thinking, this is pathetic. You have, I remember that, but you haven't got a chance, Steve. You know, this small group of you, and there's this mighty city, and, you know, how, Steve. And God, by his grace, brought to me that verse in 1 Corinthians 1.27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one may boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast except in the Lord. Yes, I was feeble. Yes, we were weak. Yes, in worldly terms, we were very insignificant. In fact, many of our family and friends who don't know Jesus thought we were absolutely crazy moving to Ireland. But... As I read 1 Corinthians 1, I realized the kingdom of darkness was trembling because we were about to have our first house church meeting of five or six people. And we were establishing something here and he was trying to say, don't even start. Satan trembles at what might happen when one person says, I might do a bit of building for Jesus. I feel small, I feel weak, I feel insignificant, and the devil is trembling because he knows how powerful you could be. And the first thing he says is, even a fox could stop you. If you're going to step out for Jesus, and we'll see this, you're going to have to get control over that emotional vulnerability and speak truth to your heart of who God is when you're weak. Isaac quoted this in his, when he was teaching on Psalm 42 a few weeks ago. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, reflects on this idea of self-talk from Psalm 42. It's, It's a long quote, but it's worth listening to. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those moments that come to you, uh, take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Someone is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Defy yourself, defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man in Psalm 42, yet I will praise him. Listen to what Nehemiah says. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over to the plunder. Give, us, give them over to us as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insult on the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the city wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. Nehemiah takes himself in hand, and he prays, and he addresses God, and he finds strength from God. We need to learn this skill, church. Self-talk, speaking to your emotions and to your thoughts, rather than allow them to speak to you. Ridicule moves to physical attack. 
When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs in Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. If subtle doubts and fears don't work, the devil says, physical attack might. And there's brothers and sisters of ours who could not meet in openly around the world today because if they had they may have been lynched. It's a real reality, the church in chains. The devil is using physical oppression to threaten and try and get God's people to stop talking, to paralyze through fear. What did Nehemiah do to the physical attack? But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard at night and day and night to meet this threat. There's five ingredients to responding to physical, uh, spiritual attack. We'll see them again and again. Here they are. Prayer, we pray to God. Truth, which is encompasses that self-talk I just talked you through. Practical common sense, they posted some guards. They just did something very logical. I think it's super spiritual. Community, we, did you see that verse nine? We prayed to our God. It was, he wasn't a lone ranger. They did it together. And just to keep you hungry, there's a fifth one coming later. You like that? So you beat off the devil with four things. Prayer, you connect to God in your moments of weakness. Truth, you beat the truth into your head to make sure it's channeling your life, not your thoughts and your emotions. Common sense, just think practically. Where do the guards need to be posted here? I'm weak. And you need others to fight with you. But there's another counterattack, this time directly at Nehemiah. Distraction and trickery. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him alone so they can trap him. And Nehemiah sees the intention. What they were going to do, we're not quite sure. Were they going to kill him? Were they, who knows? But they were just trying to get him isolated. And even though it was like, hey, just come and talk and meet, you know, you think, oh, okay, finally, there's peacemaking talks with the local. Nehemiah knew, no, no, no. There's a sinister intent here. I need to make sure I don't stop the work. He was discerning to another tactic of the devil. Distraction that can so often take us out of the fight. Trickery, we get just lost in some meaningless thing. And the devil has pulled us away. Four, lies. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand, notice, was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, you know, Geshem, whoever he is, he says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make a proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Notice the unsealed letter. They want everyone to read this. They're trying to undermine Nehemiah's work. And what they say is a lie, because we know the king sent Nehemiah to be a governor in, Ju in Judah while he remained king of all of Persia, King Artaxerxes. That had his blessing and his command, and you remember the letters he wrote. So they're trying to, it's a smear campaign, isn't it? 
And he's trying to spread lies. Why? To tarnish Nehemiah's reputation so Nehemiah responds and gets entangled trying to, trying to clear his name. They're trying to pull Nehemiah into a react here because we're tarnishing your reputation. Isn't our public reputation one of the most important things each of us has? Can any of us stand it if we know that someone's speaking behind our back or if there's something that's not quite true out there then you, you're just desperate to correct, aren't you? That's not what I think. That's not what happened. You don't understand. And we suddenly we lurch to our defense. And Nehemiah, they were trying to get him to lurch and say, be more interested in your name than the name of the Lord. They were trying to pull him out to defend his own reputation. John White says this, under these circumstances, most of us move swiftly to our own defense. We are sensitive to our reputation, touchy about how people see us. We are also fearful of what will happen to us should people believe charges leveled against us. Closed doors, faces that turn away, nasty letters, cold shoulders, all these we dread. What happens when your reputation gets tarnished sometimes? Does the devil get in through that? Do you feel the pressure to vindicate your name above all else? Well, we all feel that temptation. What does Nehemiah do? I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. Notice three things about his response. It's not reactionary or hot-headed. It's calm. It's factual. It's simple. Secondly, he doesn't actually try to argue every point. He doesn't get engaged in everything they've said. He doesn't, he doesn't go down to their level of engaging with all the lie. He just says it's not true. He realizes there's a deeper work and a deeper motivation and to try and play on their playing field. Now, he's going to get pulled down. And he seeks God. Now I prayed. There's no point fighting back with flesh because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual power. So we've got to have spiritual strength as we pray. One of the ways the devil traps us is to make us react in an ungodly way when someone attacks us. We are slandered or there's a false report or we're misrepresented or someone talks about us behind our back and we become obsessed with clearing our own name. So we start to use the devil's tactics and the devil's motives. The anger we feel becomes a place for him to get a foothold in our hearts and we feel justified. And that's why we're blind. We can't see he's got into our lives. The bitterness, the hatred, it's spreading like a cancer, but we feel justified. The biggest danger of you receiving criticism is not your reputation, but your heart. You feel the injustice of it. You feel sorry for yourself. You're tempted to despise the critic and, and, and the entire group. You, you could sometimes be smug and perhaps tempted to laugh. Oh, those critics are so they're pathetic, aren't they? Don't do it. Don't do it. Even if there's not the slightest kernel in truth of truth about what the critic says about you, you should not mock them in your thoughts. Because if you do, the devil has got a foothold into your life. Pray for yourself. Pray for them. Remain humble. Do not mock them. Do not become obsessed as the only aim in your life is to clear your name. Let Nehemiah doesn't return evil for evil. He calmly says, it's not true. God will vindicate me. Move on. But the devil's not finished. 
he has a false prophet. One day, I went to the house of Shimea, son of Deleah, the son of Mehetabal, there you go, what you think, uh, who was shut in his house, and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? That's just the greatest line in Nehemiah, by the way. Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he was, had prophesied against me because the, Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they gave me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. And the most understated line of the whole book. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Do you see how the attack comes from every angle? He has schemes. Doubt and discouragement, physical attack and murder, attack of entanglement, Nehemiah getting caught in a public fight over his reputation, a false prophet trying to deceive and try and sidetrack him. Spiritual attack is always multifaceted. You beat off one attack of the devil, he come with the next one. And he's clever. The devil knows your weakness. John White. He knows our psychological weaknesses to exploit us. He flings fiery accusation at the guilt-prone, and darts of terror at the timid. Or elsewhere, he says, you do not need to exaggerate to wound. It is only necessary to pick on a truth about which you are already sensitive. When I begin to experience doubts about the wisdom of a project I've undertaken, there is nothing, there should be nothing, there is, there is nothing I want to hear less than someone who echoes fears I already entertain. You've got to be aware of your weakness as a person. Is it character weaknesses, situational weaknesses, natural sinful tendencies, temptations? Don't be blind, because the devil knows where the weakness is and will go after them. He knows your past failures, your baggage, your insecurities, the unforgiven relationships you have in your life. He knows your, 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 your temptations. He knows when you have an inferior complex, and, and uh, he knows how to play on your low self-esteem. He knows your superior complex when you look down on others and your pride and your ego, and he knows how to play on that too. And he definitely knows how to prey on you when there's unforgiveness, and he goes, there's a bit of bitterness. I can get in here. The enemy's coming after us because we're on enemy territory, shining a light against the kingdom of darkness. And he'll use every scheme to instill fear and doubt, to paralyze you and stop you, and he'll prey on where you're weak. And the areas that you like to keep in the dark, no one else knows, he's the king of darkness. He knows how to get there. Get it into the light, friends. Remember, behind all five forms of attack, there's one source, the devil. There's one aim to stop you building God's kingdom. But the work was not stopped. Nehemiah knew how to be strong in the Lord. In fact, just 52 days against all the odds, the wall was built. Nehemiah knew how to equip himself for this kind of spiritual warfare through prayer, through truth, through common sense, and through community. And I said there was a fifth. What was it? It's as if Nehemiah knows whose he is. Every time he said, I prayed, I prayed. I know where my true identity is. He had a deep sense of where he really belonged, that no one could harm him. 
God would protect him, God would provide him, and most importantly, God would have vindicated him and have the last word. His identity was not in the building of the walls. His identity was not in his reputation as a leader. His identity was in the Lord. And I just, I said, I love verse 11. Should a man like me run away? What courage God will give someone if you'll reach out to him in prayer for help. You'll speak truth to your heart. You'll lean on the Christian community. You'll keep acting with common sense. And if you'll keep reminding yourself of whose you are when the attack comes. Again, John White. True courage does not consist in the absence of fear, but in doing what God wants, even when we are afraid, disturbed, and hurt. Nehemiah enrolled in God's school of courage. The school when he says, uh, he enrolled when he says, I was afraid. Do you remember that in chapter two, when he had to go before the king? I was afraid, he says that. And he graduates the school with honors when months later he declares, should a man like me run away? It's a tough school, Christ's school of courage. Thousands of leaders down the ages have taken the course. There are practical classes in opposition, difficult circumstances, loneliness, misunderstanding, tribulation. Some students quit because classes are so rough, not realizing their value. There is no entrance qualification. Any Christian may apply for training, and the principal himself is available for interviews with every prospective student at any hour of the day. You have only to knock, and you'll be admitted into his office for the school of courage. You want in? Make sure you know the attack that's coming. I said there were six there, didn't I? Do you remember? Internal strife over money. I put it at number six for a simple reason. It's this. If the devil cannot derail his peop- God's people from the outside, he will derail us from the inside. In fact, it is proved throughout church history that a much more effective form of attack of the devil is not intimidation through physical attack from the outside, but compromise from the inside. In fact, from church history, we know when the devil seems to attack from the outside, the church gets stronger and deeper and better. But when the devil comes in and compromises the inside, the church gets weaker and smaller and worse. We've got to be aware. We cannot look at the details of chapter 5 now, but there's a number of injustices where God's people amongst themselves, where you have the rich and the powerful exploiting the poor. In other words, money had got into people's hearts and it had got into the church community, well, the community of, of Nehemiah's time, and it was ripping the community apart. It nearly derailed the building project. We see this as a favorite tactic in scripture of the devil. If you know the scriptures well, Joshua chapter 7, Achan. They just defeated Jericho, you know, marching around, but they can't defeat I. Why not? Because someone's compromised with money. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Early church. It's growing like wildfire. The word of God has never spread so fast. And there's a couple in there who have a few thoughts about how to handle the money. And the devil had started to get in. And then don't forget, why did, well, we don't know why, but we know his tactics. Why did Judas betray Jesus? For 30 pieces of silver. And we know that he would dip in. Remember we learned that? He used to dip his hand into the common purse. Money has a way of doing that, friends. It gets into your heart. It gets into churches and it becomes divisive. And the devil loves to use compromise to derail us. So be aware of the hold money can have. 
I said there's five tactics, actually. There's six tactics, we, uh, six ways of defending the tactics. Prayer, truth, practical common sense, community, a deep sense of identity of God, and the blood of Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus to be killed. And in him being killed by the enemies, the enemies did not realize that we, God's people, through the blood of Christ that was going to be shed, would be liberated from the power of the evil one. Jesus died for our sins. He paid our debt. He dealt with our guilt. He wiped our slate clean. So the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 says he disarmed the devil on the cross Everything the devil had to accuse us, everybody that was stood against us, we were guilty. It says he was nailed to a cross. We are justified. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul had already said, what do we have because of the blood of Christ? The theological term is imputed righteousness. In Christ, we become holy without blemish in God's sight, because everything that is dirty about us has been removed, and the devil has nothing he can accuse us of, because in Christ we are like Christ, and we are spotless through faith, free from accusation. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ. We can be certain of our identity in Christ, and Jesus said he's going to build his church, and what? The gates of hell. Everything the devil can throw at it. That's our promise. It will not prevail against us. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. We claim the blood of Christ as our final weapon. Whatever the attack of the evil one against you, claim the blood of Christ as your righteousness. Don't try and fight for your reputation. Claim his blood, much more effective. Remember, you're more than a conqueror and there's no condemnation because you're in Christ. Will you stand we're going to sing to finish. Take a moment to pause and reflect. And for you just to think about where the devil may have been trying to get a foothold in your life or tempt you away from God's purpose of building the kingdom. So let's just take a moment for you to reflect and then we'll pray and sing. You're comfortable, you just close your eyes and just gives you that ability just to focus on how the Lord wants you to respond. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I'm only too aware, aware of how prone I am to wander, how quick I am to be tempted how quick I am to put my reputation above yours and how naive I can be of what's really going on in the spiritual realms because I just operate in the physical realm and I forget there's an evil one out there trying to get in. So Lord, would you teach us what it is today and would you have put something in each of us again of what it is to be strong in the Lord and in the armour that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that we have this chance every moment of every day to pray. We can reach out to you in our weakness and cry out like Nehemiah just keeps praying out. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. Lord, we'd be people that when we're feeling weak, we pray. 
We thank you, Lord, that we have this belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which means there's always a promise. There's always something we can find that we can hold on to and we can speak truth to our hearts when our hearts are frail. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us common sense just to know where do we need to post guards? Where do we need to be extra careful? Where's the devil most likely to come at us? And what do we need to do to, to preempt that attack? Give us that common sense as your people. Lord, thank you for community, for one another, that we're not in the battle alone. And keep us from being isolated. Keep us from, from finding that we're just on our own and, and it's much harder to fight on our own. Keep us together. We thank you for this, this body you've given us to strengthen each of us. Thank you, Jesus, for who we are in you. And the devil comes to us and he says things about us and we say, no, that's not true. I'm in Christ. I've been seated at the right hand of the Father. I have eternal joy coming my way. And thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed for us on the cross, meaning we are now free from condemnation. The, dis the devil has been disarmed. Death is no longer something to fear, and we are more than conquerors through you. Not in our own strength, not because we're good, but because we have a mighty Savior. It's in your mighty power that we are strong, and we thank you for that. So we give you praise now in our song. In your name, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.